The gospel never leaves people feeling neutral. It leaves us either grateful or angry, but it rarely leaves us feeling neutral. If, if you have heard the gospel rightly preached from the pages of the actual Bible, you will feel something on the other side. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. There's a sense in which the gospel unites. It brings people together from every tribe, tongue, and nation as they respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. But there's also a sense in which the gospel divides. Some people hear it and they feel drawn in, they feel welcomed, they feel called. Other people hear it and they feel judged. They get angry, they feel pushed away. The gospel is like a dog whistle. It summons some and offends others. Jesus said that, and here we see that truth illustrated in the missionary adventures of Barnabas and Paul. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 14. This chapter continues the narrative of Paul's first missionary journey as he and Barnabas travel through Pamphylia and Galatia, preaching the gospel and establishing churches throughout the region. At the end of chapter 13, we were told that a great many people responded to the preaching of the gospel, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This number included Jews, proselytes, and Greeks, many from among the Fabuminoi, the God-fearers. We also heard that many unbelieving Jews strongly opposed Paul and Barnabas, and they stirred up persecution against them and drove them out of town. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet in verse 51 and went on towards Iconium, a town about 145 kilometers away. That gives you an idea of how far the apostles had to walk in order to conduct their evangelistic campaigns. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Darbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now here we see a bit of a pattern emerging. Paul and Barnabas begin by preaching in the local synagogue. They probably figured that this would be the most fertile ground for their efforts. These people, Jews and Greek, Phobuminoi, uh, would know the Bible and would already have a love for the God of the Bible. All they needed to do now was tell them about the redemption God had provided through the life and work of Jesus Christ. So they preached and many people responded. However, those who didn't believe 
became antagonistic. We should probably see that. The gospel never leaves people feeling neutral. It leaves us either grateful or angry, but it rarely leaves us feeling neutral. If, if you have heard the gospel rightly preached from the pages of the actual Bible, you will feel something on the other side. We see that here. The unbelievers begin to persecute them. But look at verse 3. So they remained a long time. That's an odd connection. People were turning on them, so they stayed a long time. They dug in. They didn't run into the barn at the first sight of rain. They pushed through it, and the Lord strengthened them by granting signs and wonders to be done by their hand. This powerful, spirit-aided preaching on the one side and this violent opposition on the other side served basically to evacuate the middle ground. And the city of Iconium became a house divided. Jesus said this would happen And it did. The gospel divides. It leaves no one neutral. The opposition became fierce and potentially fatal. So Paul and Barnabas moved on to Lystra, a city about 29 kilometers away. Verse 8 picks up the story. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, let's just pause here and notice that this brother had faith to be healed. That stands in contrast to the story in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John heal a brother who was only looking for money. Acts 3 doesn't say anything about this man having faith to be healed. The only faith there in that story appears to be the faith of Peter and John. But here we see that this person had faith to be healed, and Paul obviously had faith too. We assume that Paul had shared some story about Jesus and his preaching and had had made reference to a healing that Jesus had performed. The text says that as this man listened to Paul speaking, he expressed faith to be healed. There must have been some content behind that faith. Paul commands him to act on it by standing, and he does and is immediately healed. So what can we say about healing at this point in Luke's narrative? I think we can say a few things. I think, first of all, we can say that healings are given in Acts primarily in order to support the preaching of the gospel. They aren't merely acts of compassion, though, of course, they could never be less than acts of compassion. But there is quite transparently a measure of strategic reasoning in the distribution of these healings. They are given to confirm the authority of the apostolic messengers and to illustrate the validity of their teaching. I don't think that can be denied. Secondly, I think we can say that faith on behalf of the human participants participants is is obviously a significant factor. In Acts chapter 3, the emphasis seems to be on Peter's faith. Here, the emphasis seems to be on this brother's faith. Obviously, faith is a significant factor. God has to will it, but the people have to have faith to receive it. Both sides of that equation appear to be important and, and deserve consideration as we see them in the text. 
Third thing I think we can see here, the healings were immediate and entire. In both Acts 3 and Acts 14, there is no delay and there is no partiality. These are full and immediate healings resulting in both cases in, in jumping and leaping and enthusiasm all around. Fourth, in both cases, the healing led to a general uprising that had the potential to result in a very significant misunderstanding. We pick up that story in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lacaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Here again, we see the downside of signs and wonders. They can be a distraction. They can lead to misplaced enthusiasm. They can lead to hero worship and idolatry, and they can obscure and overshadow the work of the gospel. All of that is on display in this story. Thankfully, however, the apostles Paul and Barnabas react very differently than did Herod in chapter 12 under similar circumstances. Verse 14 says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Paul and Barnabas, like Peter, immediately deflect the praise and adulation of the crowd and pointed them back to God. This isn't about us, they say. This is about God. Now, the sermon that they preach here is very different than the sermon preached by Peter after he had healed the lame man near the temple. The difference springing, of course, from the fact that Peter was preaching to Jews, whereas here Paul and Barnabas are preaching to Gentiles, Greeks, who likely had little to no exposure to the Bible. This story does not happen in a synagogue. These are almost certainly not fabuminoi, God-fears. These are your standard run-of-the-mill heathens, and therefore Paul speaks to them in a very different way. David Peterson remarks upon this sermon saying, The address in 14, verses 15 to 17, stands out as the first specific example of how the beliefs and practices of Greco-Roman religion were encountered. The message here is not about God fulfilling his promises to Israel and sending the Savior, but good news about the possibility of escaping from the futility of idolatry and coming to know the true and living God, closed quote. So this sermon is more about leaving the darkness and futility of pagan life and entering into the life and light of God through the person and work of Christ. Thanks be to God. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, 
he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Here we should notice how fast things can change over the course of your gospel career. One day they're hailing you as a god, and the next day they're trying to kill you. As I said, the gospel does not leave people neutral. But miraculously, the Lord revives Paul and the apostles head off down the road another 89 kilometers towards Derby. We should notice here that Derby is the end of the line. After Derby, they turn around and retrace their steps towards home. Verse 21 tells that story. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So hear that, friends. They went out on a line, as it were, and then they stopped. Derby was the last stop on the line. They turned around and went back, visiting and strengthening the souls of the disciples and appointing elders in every church. That insight adds some critical content to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16. There, while talking about the qualifications for elders, He says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. All right, well, clearly not a recent convert can't mean has to have been a Christian for 10 years because here in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, some of these people had been Christians for less than six months. So not a recent convert is obviously a relative term long enough to show some fruit, some maturity, and some stability. That seems to be the point. Notice also how prayerful this entire process of selecting elders was in the early church. Fasting is generally understood as serving to amplify the experience of prayer. Fasting is prayer plus, and it is in the context of prayer plus that these sorts of decisions are being made. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because I'm really interested in the timeline that you just laid out. I don't think I've ever noticed the fact that the people who were appointed elders in some of the churches would have only been three to four months old in their faith. That's a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, this is one of those instances where it would be really helpful to have a map open in front of you as you read the story. Most Bibles, or at least many Bibles, will have maps of Paul's missionary journeys near the back flap. So I've got my Bible open in front of me, and I'm looking at a map of Paul's first missionary journey. And it looks like a wonky circle or a (laughs) poorly drawn old-fashioned clock. So imagine if Paul and Barnabas took off at where the big two would be, and then they sailed in kind of a semicircle down to 6 p.m. at the bottom there where Cyprus was, and then they sailed up in a sort of semicircle towards where 9 p.m. would be, and that's where Perga was. And then imagine them walking up overland in a semicircle towards 12 o'clock, and then passing through Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, 
and then turning around and retracing their steps towards Perga at 9 o'clock again. <laughs> okay, but that, that begs the question, why didn't they just keep on walking from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock? That would have been a lot shorter. In theory, yes, but actually from 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock is all mountains, ah. so it wasn't possible. In those days, you could only go where the sea or the roads went, so for all intents and purposes, Derby was the end of the line. All right, so then if they turned around in Derby and started retracing their steps, then the elders they appointed in Lystra would have only been saved for a couple of months, maybe even less than that. Yeah, that's true. And as I said in the program audio, that has to change how we think about what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.6 about an elder not being a recent convert. Obviously, recent is a relative term. But this was also a unique situation, right? I mean, sometimes you have to do things on the mission field that you wouldn't do in other situations. Yeah, I think that's true. Paul couldn't be sure if he could ever get back that way again, so he had to do the best that he could do. And he didn't feel as though a church could survive without elders, so he chose the most mature men available and put them in place in each of the towns. Okay, so that raises another question for me. What exactly is an elder, and why did Paul feel like a church couldn't survive without them? Well, based on what Paul says in places like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and based on what we see in Acts, it appears as though the elders were the overseers or the shepherds of the Christian flock. They were not apostles. None of these people who were appointed to the role of elder in Acts 14 met the criteria for being called an apostle. None of them had seen the risen Christ. None of them were eyewitnesses. None of them appear to have done signs and wonders. They were just legitimately saved reasonably mature believers who had some leadership gifts. And their job, again, based on 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, was to steward the apostolic gospel and to exercise some discipline. In Titus 1, Paul is giving young Titus some counsel as to the sort of people he should choose for the job. And he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So it sounds like doctrinal stewardship and church discipline were the main tasks associated with the office, at least in the early days. Yeah, and I would say that should remain true in the present day as well. This is what elders do. And they also appear to have looked after the church finances. We saw that in Acts 6 with the money that went to the food distribution, and then again in Acts 11 with the money that was given for famine relief. So I think we could safely add that to the position description for elders as well. All right, that's super helpful. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So they retraced their steps and then they regathered with the church that had sent them out. Notice that they were sent out by one church, not 57 churches. Now, maybe every church can't afford to support an entire project. I get that. But let's at least admit that the original model appears to present single churches launching leaders from their own congregation out on their collective behalf. They knew these men. These men were them. This was a representative trip. And when they had completed their task, 
they rejoined the church that had sent them. I think there is something in there for us if we have eyes to see it. We should also probably point out that these three churches highlighted in Acts 14, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, are almost certainly to be identified with the churches to whom Paul's epistle to the Galatians was originally written. Knowing that, after reading the story, knowing that changes how you'll hear that letter. When Paul talks about being wooed away from their original trust in the gospel, he's talking about these people. Paul planted them and and set them up as churches and gave them elders. Granted, they were new believers by our standards, but he set these churches up. And, And then he heard that some of them were falling away, so he wrote them a letter. When Paul in Galatians 3, 5 talks about the miracles that were done in their midst, he's almost certainly talking about the brother who was crippled from birth and who was healed in the city of Lystra. See, reading these stories helps you put your Bible together, helps you connect the dots, and it helps you understand the heart of the apostle behind those sometimes stern and urgent letters. He's fighting for his children in the faith. I think that's important to see. Lastly, we should also say something about the term apostle. Only in Acts 14 are Paul and Barnabas called apostles. Nowhere else in the book of Acts are they so designated. Normally, Luke reserves that title for the 12, but here we have two more. The word itself means sent with authority. Paul and Barnabas were sent, sent by the Holy Spirit. Luke told us that in Acts 13, 1 to 3. And of course, they had authority. We just saw that they were supported by signs and wonders. So clearly, this was an extra over and above apostolic anointing. Reminds me a little bit of the story in Numbers 11. I don't know if you remember that. God was going to take some of the anointing that was on Moses and put it on a group of other leaders selected from the 12 tribes of Israel. And then all of a sudden, two extra fellas started prophesying in the camp, and they weren't part of the original group that was supposed to be anointed. Verse 27 says, And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So we had two extras in in the Old Testament. And now we've got two extra here. It seems like Old Testament and New God occasionally delights in overflowing the banks. He is sovereign, and this is his thing. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to something you said a moment ago or two in the program audio. You mentioned that this entire missionary journey was funded by one church. Paul and Barnabas were from the church in Antioch. They were sent out by that church, and when the trip was over, they went back and reported to that church. That doesn't seem to be the way we do things today. Most of the missionaries I know are supported by multiple churches, maybe dozens of churches, and so when they come back from the field, it's not one report, it's constant reporting and not a lot of rest. Is that a good thing, or should we be paying more attention to the pattern we're seeing here? Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think the way we've been doing missions for the last 150 years or so is a good way to do it. Now, obviously, 
a ton of great work has been done by missionaries and a ton of sacrificial giving has been done by congregations. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that our system does seem to place an unnecessary burden on the missionaries when they come home from the field. I know at our church, we did a missions audit back in 2008, and that was the one, one of the main things we wanted to change. We were supporting a huge array of people and projects with very small amounts. That's just the way our budget had evolved. Everyone's cousin or aunt or nephew who was anywhere doing anything for the Lord was getting a couple hundred bucks a month. But as a result, our list of people we were supporting was a mile wide and an inch deep. And we wanted to flip that and work towards a list that was an inch wide and a mile deep. We wanted to be 70, 80, 90, or even 100% of a few projects instead of 1% of 100 projects. We figured that would forge deeper bonds with the people on the field and make things easier on them when they were home. So how was that received by the congregation? Well, obviously, I mean, all change is hard in in a church, and wherever relationships are going to be part of the mix, that's going to make things even more difficult. But by and large, we tried to move slowly. But now that we are doing it this way, our people love it. We know what projects we're supporting, and we know the people involved in those projects, and, and that, I think, is better for them and for us. Yeah, that sounds really helpful, and I'm sure we're going to have more opportunity to speak about these things in the weeks and the episodes ahead. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet Your word is the wisdom that I need And your word is my ever-guiding light Your word brings me through the night And I am called to love your word Called to live what I have heart and make it pure how i love your word and i will stand upon your truth placing all my trust in you all you promised you
come to know you more, so we can love you deeply, Lord. You are so worthy. So give us a hunger for your word, so we can come to know you more. 